Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the About to Review podcast, here to amplify diverse voices in media. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is listed everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Alexa via TuneIn, and you can also stream the episodes directly from the website, abouttreeview.com, which is where you will find links to the show notes and guests. While you are on the website, you can click the support tab where there is a direct PayPal link. If you are feeling generous, there's also a link to an Amazon wish list in the episode description if you want to go that route. Make sure to follow the podcast on social media at abouttreeview, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and also youtube.com slash abouttoreview. All right, on this week's episode, I am solo on this one because I just got back from Vancouver, British Columbia, my home away from home when it comes to covering festivals, uh, because I attended the Vancouver Badass Film Festival. So that is what this episode is going to be all about. Uh, My coverage of there, I'm going to talk about my favorites from each of the three days and the ones that kind of stood out for me. And my coverage of the Vancouver Badass Film Festival was made possible uh, by David Abu Safi, the co-creator of the Vancouver Badass Film Festival, who is also the head honcho at Generativity Productions, which is a Vancouver-based financing and production company that makes it happen for budget genre film. Their tagline is Generativity Productions, make it happen. He also heads Darkside Releasing, which is also based in Vancouver, and it is an international distribution company specializing in wild genre films, Darkside Releasing, Wild Genre Films, which is exactly what I spent all weekend watching. So thank you so much uh, for your support and sponsorship, David and Generativity Productions and Darkside Releasing. Before we get into all of the Vancouver Badass Film Festival coverage, we need to go to the original theme song, created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. At the top of the show, just like on every episode, I will go over a couple of geek news items, and then I will be reviewing a film that is in theaters, or will be in theaters, this weekend. And this is a film that definitely fits right into the genre that I spent all weekend watching. That review will be for Pet Cemetery. So that will be coming up in just a couple minutes, but first, the geek news items. A big event in the world of theaters took place recently, and that is CinemaCon. CinemaCon is not like any other convention or gathering. CinemaCon is basically just for theater owners, essentially for the studios to (laughs) tell them, hey folks, relax. People are still going to go to the theater. We promise Netflix is not going to destroy cinema as we know it. And then of course, the theater owners, you know, sigh, give a big sigh of relief 
and then continue to trash Netflix at almost every opportunity they have. But the thing about CinemaCon that is also different is they will show different types of trailers and different kind of pieces of films that they're going to be working on because the studios, this is not showing trailers to fans who are going to love everything. Anybody who has ever been to any Comic-Con, a studio can get up there and be like, and now Deadpool, woo, and people freak out. And now Colossus, woo, people freak out. CinemaCon, these are theater owners. So when companies are like, hey, this is our docket for the next five years, here it is. Like this is, it is, they don't really need to sell them on the, on the geekery, on the nerdness. They need to sell them on the business side of things, on the financial side of things. So it is a different spin. But we always get little interesting things from CinemaCon every year. So this year, one of the things that Disney announced is that they plan to continue the Alien and Planet of the Apes franchises. And that gets me a little bit worried, mainly because with Alien, I love the first two, then it went off the rails, then we got Prometheus, then we got all of these other ones. Like, the last Alien we got or the last Alien movie we got, is a prequel that still does not explain anything as a prequel should. So where they plan on going with this, I have no idea. It, it truly, I mean, is it going to be another prequel to set up the movies that we already know exist? Is it going to be a sequel to the movies that already took place in the far-flung future of the Alien films we already saw? The Alien vs. Predator ones get thrown in the mix somewhere, who knows where. I have no idea what to expect with these Alien movies. But I am a sucker for Alien. And I just, I like the concepts of those movies, sometimes more than the films itself. So who knows kind of what they plan on doing. But that was part of it, is that they're going to be moving forward in one way or another. Now with the Planet of the Apes announcement... That actually makes a lot of sense because of three movies that we have had so far varying slightly in, uh, how should I say, not necessarily quality, but in, in kind of tone and, and pacing. The third one was incredible and it really, it just, it was so emotional and you never really had those moments where it was like, oh, this is purely a CGI character that I'm not really connected to. I felt connected to all of the CGI characters in a very deep sense. So that was just incredible. Did the movie make sense? Not really. Uh, did it explain things in a way that could lead into the Planet of the Apes franchise films, the Charlton Heston style ones that we grew up watching? Yes. It does kind of set the tone and lays out their track for those movies. So at least that one, when they made the announcement, it was like, okay, do I need to see another Planet of the Apes movie set in a future where they are the dominant species? Do I need to see it? No. Will I see it? Absolutely. Especially if it is at the quality that we have seen recently. So very interesting news uh, on that front. One of the other things that was announced at CinemaCon. They're actually, this is a very CinemaCon heavy uh, geek news section. 
So for those people who follow CinemaCon, this is just a refresher. But basically, uh, Terminator Dark Fate, another franchise that has varying degrees of quality and varying degrees of confusion. In the sense where some of them, you just kind of go along with it and you're like, sure, this is not making complete sense, but at least I am here for the ride. Other ones are just a mess from nearly beginning to end. But Terminator Dark Fate, uh, people got to see some footage from it. They put up some new uh, screenshots and action shots of some of the characters in it. Now, this is the return to form, as it were. So James Cameron is producing the movie, which is which is a good start because at one point he was like, Terminator Salvation is the Terminator movie that I wanted. Yeah, that was before he saw the movie. And then when people asked him about it later, his tone kind of changed a little bit. But this is basically a sequel, a direct sequel to Terminator 2. Ignoring Salvation, ignoring Genesis, just doing a straight sequel. So again, interesting choice. Uh, but this is going to be directed by Tim Miller from Deadpool and so many other things. So that has me excited because we obviously know that Tim Miller can do action with some humor but also just a solid story. With this, this is going to be just an action-heavy movie, and it seems like the gang is back together. So Linda Hamilton is back. Arnold is back. It looks solid. I mean, again, it looks solid. None of us saw this, or some people did. I did not attend CinemaCon, so I did not see the footage, but there were a lot of Twitter reactions of people who were there watching the footage as it was going on. And they were impressed. So this movie, I'm not even sure when it comes out. I think next year I should have looked. But, uh, oh, November 1st. Oh, yeah, so this year. So we will see in just a few months if they have managed to pull off a Terminator movie that is not insane. And by insane, I mean bad. So that should be interesting. But I am excited to see that because I am a sucker for... Terminator 1 and 2, the other ones, not so much. So yeah, November 1st is Terminator Terminator Dark Fate. One of the other big things that came out of CinemaCon was the Joker teaser trailer. They called this a teaser trailer when it was like, uh, this is a three-minute trailer, so I'm not sure what, like two and a half minutes, like do trailers need to be four minutes for it to count as a full trailer? I do not know, but normally if they say teaser trailer, like Avengers has done this time and time again, it will be like 30, maybe 60 seconds, show you a couple scenes, and then be out. This is two and a half minutes, and it kind of follows, or not follows, it kind of tells us what the story is going to be, at least some of the, the big beats in it. Walking Phoenix looks super creepy. And this looks like he lost a ton of weight. And the earlier pictures that we saw when he was in his full kind of suit and get up in this 1970s style, we never really saw kind of what his body looked like and how that would maybe play into his character in this. I mean, there are scenes where he just, he looks emaciated. The way that he is moving and kind of just contorting his shoulder blades is just really unnerving. And so in this trailer, we kind of see the progression from 
him being a sign spinner and clown makeup and getting beaten up by some some darn youths. And then we see his transition, whether or not, you know, a certain character, which actually, no, a character is not going to be in this. What am I talking about? This is a prequel <laughs> from what we have seen, at least. This is a prequel. So Batman, as far as we know, is not going to be in this. But we see his kind of transition from something happening in his life that was detrimental to then he becomes crazy. Now, some people are saying that, do we need a Joker movie? I'm in the camp of not really, because the thing that makes Joker so appealing in the comics books for the past 80 years is he has never had one definitive origin. Only a few characters in comic books can say that. Even with Wolverine, they finally gave him an origin story in like 2004 in the storyline origin, and then they kind of made that canon. They made it into the thing. It was not just an Elseworlds-style story. The Joker has had a couple different origins over the years. We see one in The Killing Joke. We see one in other places. But there has never been a definitive, this is where he started. This is what happened. This is where he is now. So with this, I mean, they're pulling at some interesting concepts, interesting ideas. I think with the time period being in the approximate 70s and Thomas Wayne still being alive if this is going to tie into anything that is going to be an interesting jump and who knows if it will tie into anything I still struggle with DC and if they have a plan at all or if they're just going to do offshoot movies so Joaquin Phoenix though he looks super creepy and I I'm down for this movie uh, and Todd Phillips is directing it so very interested to see what happens there. And then another big casting news. This is something that has been in the works for a very long time, but now it actually looks like it is happening. Cowboy Bebop, a live action Cowboy Bebop based on the amazing anime is, is going to be happening. And the anime was actually only, it was like 26 episodes, which would you, when you compare legendary anime this is always up there in conversation and for only a short period of time as far as episodes and when it was on, that is pretty incredible. So there have been talks about a live action Cowboy Bebop movie for a long time. Keanu Reeves was going to play Spike Spiegel at one point. That would have been interesting because he physically looks the part. His hair is kind of all over the place. He is a martial artist. I, I would be interested. But they officially cast... Uh, the main four people. So John Cho is actually going to be Spike Spiegel. Mustafa Shakir is in this. Danielle Pineda and Alex Hassel. So that is an interesting cast. First of all, I love the diversity in that. Uh, Mustafa Shakir as Jet Black, who is this kind of huge intergalactic cop who is always on the right side. Or was at one point, and then something happened, and then that made him turn into a bounty hunter. So, that is interesting. Uh, Pineda is Faye Valentine, and Hassel is Vicious, who is basically the main antagonist over the series. It was Spike's former partner. How that plays in, that should be interesting. But the main thing that I am interested in for this movie, are, well, actually a couple things. One, 
Uh, on a on a serious note, they have to bring in the music. Yoko Kano did the music for all of the episodes with this incredible jazz uh, beats throughout the entirety of the show in the intro, during the episodes, these incredible just blue notes. Why not bring her back for the movie? I think that would be amazing. It would fit perfectly. I think for a lot of people, the visuals are going to sell them. But if we hear those tones, if we hear the music that we remember from watching this back in, I think it was like, it was like when, when Toonami and Adult Swim first launched. So it was like early 2000s by the time a lot of us got to see these. If they hit us with the music, I can give a little bit of leeway on the visuals because this is going to be tough to match. And to have it really make sense in a, in a physical world, <laughs> in a live action world. But if they give me the music and if Yoko Kano is able to come back and do the music, that would be incredible. My second thing, and this is just a dream. This is just, I'm just putting this out there in the universe. So one of the things that is fascinating about the Cowboy Bebop universe is that it is this team of bounty hunters who watch this program uh, called, I think it was Big Shots, you know, it was the, it was the program hosted by Punch and Judy, these two over-the-top cowboy personas who announce what the bounties are and how much they are and where the last, where, the where you know, you saw the person the last. Here is the thing that I'm putting out into the universe. One of the characters, Punch, in Big Shots, is a black cowboy, big mustache, over the top. There's a black actor in Hollywood who has played a cowboy before before that I think would be perfect. Yes, I am talking about Lawrence Fishburne as Cowboy Curtis from Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> now, am I a fan of Pee Wee Herman? No. Do I lose listeners every time I say that I'm not a fan of Pee Wee Herman? Yes. But Cowboy Curtis is basically Punch from Big Shots. I think that would be amazing. Lawrence Fishburne, like, he is at the point of his career where he can kind of do anything he wants. Like, he is just such a legend. I think this would just be a really fun character. I mean, they're, they're never going to do that. It would just be ridiculous. But that would just be kind of fun. So, yeah, but the Cowboy Bebop live cast was announced. There will be a link to all of these articles in the description of the episode below if you want to click on that and learn more. Okay, so that wraps it up for the geek news. Now onto the first episode. First episode. Wow. Uh, now onto the first review of this episode, and that is for Pet Cemetery, the new film directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmire. Uh, this is based obviously off of the book that Stephen King wrote in 1983, way back in 1983. And of course, they had the film version, the original film, I should say, in 1989, directed by Mary Lambert. Now, this new film takes a lot of the beats from the original movie and from, obviously, the book as well, but it takes some big differences uh, as well. So it stars Jason Clark, Amy Simetz, John Lithgow, Jate Lawrence, and Hugo Laveau as Gage, even though... One of the big differences in this is Gage is not really in this very much. There were actually times when I forgot he was in it at all. Like, there would be a good 20-minute chunk, 25-minute chunk, where we just do not see Gage at all. So, that, of course, is a difference to anybody who has seen the original 1989 movie and read the book. Because in the book, Gage 
unfortunately gets hit by a truck and dies. The dad, the loving dad who wants to kind of bring, not, not he does not actually want to bring him back. He just, he misses him, takes him to this place, this magical, mystical place. Turns out Gage comes back, but it is not the Gage they knew. Duh. Why would you think that bringing something back from the dead, no matter what, is going to work? So in this movie, Gage is not the one who that happens to. We do see a scene where we think it might happen. Gage kind of goes running out to the street. But instead, Ellie, the daughter, is the one who gets hit. So this is something where, again, the movie came out in 89. The book came out in 83. I still am not going to go into too many spoilers uh, for this film. But again, if you know the story, you know where this is going. So Ellie gets hit. John Lithgow, as the the old neighbor, old wise neighbor, takes him to this mystical, magical place, and he says, bury the daughter, and blah, blah, blah. So, well, this is actually after the cat comes back. Um, and after seeing the cat come back, after it is basically a devil cat, why? Why would you think, even in your most grief-stricken moment, sure, my daughter will be fine. The cat came back a demon, but pff, that would not happen to my daughter. Surely not. Spoiler alert. Of course it does. Of course it does. So in the, in this, you know, kind of journey that we see the parents going through, Jason Clark's character, uh, Lewis has a very interesting kind of flashbacks and everything to a student that he saw die you know, on the operating table. And this is very art, very early on in the movie. But he sees that character appear multiple times through the movie as this kind of driving force, something that is pulling him to the supernatural area. And yet it is also warning him against the area, which is a little bit confusing. But at certain points where we see Jason Clark, you know, going down to the basement because he hears something creepy, he turns around, the cat is there, and when it hisses at the darkness and runs away, first of all, if a normal cat does that, you should probably take that as a sign as the whatever is down there in the basement, you do not want to mess with. If this is a demon cat who has been brought back from the dead, who hisses at the darkness and runs away, you should probably leave that area. You should probably leave that room. You should probably leave that house. You should leave this state. Get away from whatever the demon cat was scared of because... It, yeah, come on, just use your common sense. And that is something in horror films that we often, I often talk about, you know, my guests often talk about, you need, you need people in scary movies to make dumb choices. And they do repeatedly in this. One thing that I liked about this film, though, is that it built up the tension leading to the jump scare. It did not rely on it completely. A film that did, you know, in recent memory would be The Nun from last year. A terrible movie. Because all it was doing was jump scare after jump scare after jump scare. This, at least, made you feel like it was leading to that, but you were not sure when. That type of tension adds a different layer. Because if you're watching something and the music starts swelling and the music cuts out, you know the jump is going to happen. This did a good job, almost like a little bit of a misdirect where it would kind of build and build and build, and you just were not sure when it was coming. And they absolutely got me 
with with one of them. And it has to do with a famous scene that was in the original movie. And actually, if you go, if you're in the Seattle area and you go to Mopop, in the horror exhibit, you see a model of a foot and a, well, actually kind of a calf and foot with the Achilles tendon cut. That happened in the original, that happens in this one, but the way they did it absolutely got me because it built to it and you're like, oh, it's going to happen and it's going to happen. Something happens and you're like, oh, wait, they actually did not take the easy way out. Cut to 10 seconds later, it happens and it absolutely got me. Uh, so that was that was solid. Um, one other thing that was interesting, I will say, is the portrayal of Jete Lawrence as Ellie. I really liked when she became, or not when she became, as she was becoming, I should say, more and more possessed. Like for a young actress, she made some really cool choices just with her body movements and just with some different contortions. So that was really cool. Jason Clark's Australian accent definitely slipped a few times uh, here and there. But overall, he was pretty good. Uh, Amy Simetz as Rachel, she, she was good and she was kind of scared of, she kept seeing visions of her sister and there's a whole backstory behind that. I just, there, there was not really enough kind of connective tissue, I feel like, between the two of them, between the two adults, the parents. So that was just kind of a weird thing to watch. Uh, John Lithgow, he was great in this. He very frequently is great in this. He makes some dumb choices. But again, this is a horror movie. People do that all the time. Uh, but yeah, it was shot really well. I liked a lot of the overhead shots and just how it would kind of seamlessly transition from almost a drone style shot. But it would swoop down and lead right into a ground shot. So I doubt that they did that with the drone. There was probably some clever editing in there. But that was just, that was really cool. And it did it, it, did it a couple times. So good for them on that. Uh, overall, for a, for a scary movie, this was definitely really bloody and gory. But I'm not really sure how scary it was, if, if that makes sense. So it is a horror movie. But it is, I think, mainly a horror movie because of the amount of blood that we see. But this is still kind of a, a thriller to me. There are questions that go unanswered. We see a bunch of creepy little kids that you see in the trailer leading to the pet cemetery. We never really get, you know, some background on them and if they know what they're doing or if they know about what is behind the pet cemetery. But none of that is really consequential to the film itself. So... Uh, with that being said, with kind of a breakdown of that, I liked the tone. I liked the camera angles. The score was really nice because, again, it built to that jump scare. But, yeah, the the connection between the family members, I guess, was not always apparent. So, if this is your first time listening to the About to Review podcast, first of all, welcome. Thank you for listening. Uh, the rating system for this podcast, there are only three choices. No letter grades, no stars. The three choices are good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something that you would come out of the theater and recommend and want to talk about with your friends. A bad film is not something that you regretted sitting in a theater for two hours for, but it just did not really connect to you and made you want to talk about it. Ugly is a void at all costs. Pet Cemetery is an interesting one 
this is not a film that I think I will ever go back to. It is not something where those unanswered questions hooked me enough to make me want to see it a second time. The performances were, were, were good in it. I really liked Ellie. Like, Jate Lawrence did a great job as that character. But un- unfortunately, I kind of got to give this a bad. I think it just, it did not connect on enough of the parts and enough of the uh, emotion. So I liked the ending. The ending was definitely uh, a unique twist, just kind of on on the mythology. There was a little bit of a Quentin Tarantino-style filmmaking from the beginning to the end. That was interesting. So there were some cool choices, but overall, yeah, this is not something that, yeah, I I want to kind of go back to. Uh, The other thing is, I have no connection to the original. A lot of my friends that I was talking about and fellow critics, they're like, oh, I love the original. It scared me so much. I loved this and this and this. I have no connection to the original. I remember it vaguely, but that was it. So it is not even that I disliked it because I have so much love for the original. It just did not really connect with me. So Pet Cemetery, uh, directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, gets a bad. Now, on to the film festival that I spent this past weekend in a packed theater for, which was the Vancouver Badass Film Festival. This is the fifth year that the Vancouver Badass Film Festival has been going on. There were eight feature-length films, 46 short films over kind of two and a half days. Like, it was a packed two and a half days that I was in the theater with and seeing these films. Uh, What I will be doing, actually, on top of doing my breakdown episode, which is what you are listening to, there will be an episode of About to Interview, also coming out probably on the same day as this episode, because I was able to sit down with some of the filmmakers this weekend. So I talked to Dave Gilbank, who is the writer and co or co-writer and director of Polterheist, Matt Pop and Roberto Lanzas from Luchador, and then I talked to a bunch of people from the closing night film, which was Amy. So I spoke to Rusty Nixon and James Clayton, who are the writer, director, and producer. And then the actors, Phil Granger, Havana Guppy, Debs Howard, and Bonnie Hay. So I will be cutting all of those together into an episode of About to Interview, which will be coming out soon. So thank you to all of the people who made time to sit down with me. This took place at two different venues. The first couple nights were the Van City Theater, which again is my home away from home. I feel very comfortable in that theater. I am there very frequently. Shout out to Francis. Uh, who runs the place in the evenings. She is always amazing. Helps me out with my random requests here and there. So big shout out to her. So with that, I was able to set up like a little recording studio in the corner by a fireplace and with some couches and chairs. I'm fortunate to be able to do that at certain venues. The closing night film was just at a different and uh, different location at the Rio Theater, which is ran by Rachel Fox, who is amazing. There was not really a place where we could kind of get away. So I did what every intrepid podcast interviewer does. I found a stairwell, and that was where I made my recording studio. So it was between the theater and the lobby. So those interviews with the Amy team, especially the Amy, I call them team. Oh, yeah, they are a team. Team of filmmakers. Uh, those, those interviews, definitely, there will be a little bit of audio difference between those and the earlier ones. But it was great. 
I mean, the fact that these filmmakers who I just met, I was like, hey, want to be interviewed in this stairwell? Come on, sit down. We can have a chat. They all did. They all thought it was great. So I will be putting those up uh, again, probably the same day this episode drops. Now, to the films themselves or to the days themselves. So the first day on Friday night, that was a hard Brexit double feature. So there's an opening party with some magic tricks. That was nice. Uh, and it was hosted by two vampires, or at least one vampire and one possibly vampire, possibly Frankenstein lady. I'm not quite sure. But they were there during the day, so that was impressive. There was sunlight coming in, and they were not affected, so good for them. That was Gidget Gravedigger and Sean Covington. Or Coven, Covington? Yes, Sean Covington. So that was cool. There was some audience participation in this magic show, and it definitely put you in the mood to see a film festival unlike most film festivals you will see. I have been to horror film festivals before. I'm a sponsor uh, for a local one, the Seattle 48-Hour Horror Film Project. But having some magicians in full makeup, full costume in these characters that they created, that was really cool. And it gave the audience really time to be like, oh, this is what we were getting ready for. I'm on board. So definitely... Good job, uh, Gidget and Sean, for doing that. So there were a couple of shorts before each of the feature films that were played on Friday. So the shorts before Polterheist were Parlor Tricks and Youngblood. Parlor Tricks, of course, starred Gidget Gravedigger and John Covington. Uh, and that that was a black and white kind of seance short film. It was really funny. And again, it kind of set the tone for what we were about to see for the weekend Youngblood also set the tone in that that one was, there was kind of a, a bank robbery mishap, and then there's a kid involved, but the boss wants the money, and that type of dynamic where, what are we going to do? We have this kid now, there's money that needs to be paid to this person, how are we going to get out of this mess? So it was nice that there was kind of a, a comedic horror short, and then a gangster-ish short in there as well, because there were definitely a few of the films that had that bent to them, or that bend to them. So those led us into Polterheist. Polterheist is the first feature film that kicked off the festival. So it was directed by David Gilbank and co-written by David Gilbank and Gemma Head. So <laughs> this movie, again, blend, blended the comedy, the horror, the possession that we would be seeing throughout the festival weekend. So this basically takes two low-level gangsters who make the unfortunate uh, accident of killing somebody in their organization who has information about where money is stored that the boss desperately wants. So, uh, yeah, that, that is not good for them when the boss comes calling looking for the money. And they were like, oh, but he has it. And they were like, right, how can we get this? So they end up going to a psychic medium played by Joe Mosley, who she was phenomenal. I talked about this in my capsule review uh, that you can see on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. But she has this transformative performance where she is just this regular kind of hometown psychic medium. And now these two gangsters show up being like, we need to talk to our dead, quote-unquote, friend, 
quote unquote acquaintance, quote unquote coworker, because he knows where some money is and we may or may not have killed him in the process, but we need your help to get in contact with him and figure out where it is. So they do this seance, they do this ritual, and he does come back. You know, at least, well, yes, he possesses the body of, of Alice, of Joe Mosley's character, the psychic medium. From there, hilarity ensues, but also all of the characters have to make some really difficult choices. So Sid Akbar Ali and Jamie Symbol are the two gangsters who yeah, are forced with now this personification of the person they just killed and they're trying to trust him because they recognize like okay yeah we killed you sorry about that um we still need the money for our crazy boss Uday played by Pushbender Chani uh please help us because we really don't want to deal with him he likes to hit people with cricket bats a lot in this movie so that was definitely unique so as they go through this kind of ragtag adventure of trying to piece together where this money is, how they get out of this situation. This is just, this was really well done. So there was a lot to like uh, in this film. The comedic elements were spot on. So I appreciated that. And Joe Mosley, like she was, she was tremendous. The thing that I liked as much, if not more than Joe Mosley's performance was the music. The music was done by Umberto Guaudino, who he crushed it. Like, I really liked that. And Dave Gilbank and I were actually able to talk about him quite a bit in the interview that you will hear soon. So yeah, so Polterheist, really fun film and definitely a great way to kick off the festival. So that was followed by two more short films before the next uh, feature. The two short films that went before Perfect Skin was called Skin Deep and Red Moon. Skin Deep was terrifying and grotesque. Uh, basically, this old lady uh, who runs a bakery kind of starts killing people and there were croissants involved. And then she starts peeling away her own skill, her own skin to reveal that she is this younger person. So we're led to believe she has to kill them to then revert to her younger shape. Super creepy and weird. The physical effects were great. When it came to her actually like peeling her face away, really weird. And again, a lot of people at the end of this, they were talking to the filmmakers in this Q&A. And they were like, I will never look at a croissant the same again. Because you just see blood on them, you see skin on them. Yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. Uh, and then Red Moon, which was this really short film about... A, kind of, well, we don't find out in the film, but we talked about it in the Q&A after this alien presence, this alien possibly invasion that one of the characters is then now a part of as he starts hearing voices of people that should not be there and situations where there should not be what he is looking at. So really cool kind of visual effects with this one as far as just the interesting camera choices. So that was Red Moon and Skin Deep that led into Perfect Skin. Perfect Skin was directed by Kevin Chicken and written by Kevin Chicken and Dusan Tolmak. This is one, this is a film that stuck with me long after seeing it. So this is basically, if you think of The Cell, 
with Jennifer Lopez and Vincent D'Onofrio. Stick with me. We will get there. Uh, where it takes the kidnap elements of a movie like that. It takes the physical mutilation of the body and body modification parts of that and grounds it in reality. So take away the fantasy elements, take away the traveling into somebody's mind elements, and just focus on what if a person kidnapped somebody, held them against their will, and started modifying their body? That is terrifying. (laughs) Because again, it is not the monsters in the closet. It is not the aliens in space. It is a, here is a man, played by Richard Clark, a character's name is Bob who is so charming and so just maliciously charming in the sense where he is the type of person who can kind of get whatever he wants. And so as he starts talking to Katya, uh, played by Natalia, oh, this is going to be tough. Sorry, Natalia. Uh, Natalia Kostrezwa? Nope, that is not right. Uh, Kostrewa. That possibly could be it. I'm sorry, Natalie. Uh, my Polish is not good, as you can hear. So he starts kind of hitting it off with her. And you just, you see this charm in Richard Blake. He is this tattoo artist. And so, you know, being friends with these younger ladies that he has tattooed or wants to tattoo, it just kind of makes sense. And you're like, oh, okay, this is just a charming older guy. Uh, no, no, he is evil. He is very, very evil. And so once he kidnaps Natalia or Katya, played by Natalia, and starts to change her body and really starts to mess with her mind because, I mean, she is captive. Nobody is coming after her. And he is just transforming her body into what he believes is the perfect canvas, into the perfect piece of art that he wants to create. It is unnerving. And Natalia just, she knocks it out of the park when it comes to her physical performance as she is, you know, being tortured in a sense. And you see the way that it is affecting her mental state, her physical state. There are times in which she kind of resigns herself to it. There are times when you see this resiliency that is just infectious. Just this determination that is incredible. Richard Brake stays crazy through the entire movie. But man, is he charming. Even while he is completely crazy. Uh, Joe Woodcock is also in this. Uh, she plays Lucy, who is Katya's, you know, kind of really good friend and flatmate. She is the one who then starts to really worry when she is not able to get a hold of Katya. And she goes on this mission, basically, to try and figure out what is happening. Like, where her friend is, what what Bob is up to. So, through that, you know, through that kind of lens of Lucy we get a different perspective of what is going on because Bob is pulling all the strings. Some of them literal. Some of them are chains and some of them are wires, but he is pulling all of the strings with multiple people, with Katya, with Lucy, with other characters in the film that we see him interact with. This is just, this is a game. This is a sick and twisted game for him. Tremendous visual you know, work that they did in this. There is a, and I think you see part of it in a trailer, but you see a full suspension in this movie. Body modification suspension with hooks. Everybody in the theater 
And I was so luckily for this one, I was sitting up in the balcony because I can take notes up there and not bother anybody. Everybody in the theater that I could see down below just cringed. Just like some, some people turned away. Some people had a physical reaction in their chair. You succeeded as a filmmaker if you can have a film that impacts people in a physical way like that. So this film, yeah, this, this was an incredible film. So Perfect Skin, uh, written or directed by Kevin Chicken and written by Kevin Chicken and Dusan Tolmach. Uh, I'm not going to be giving all of these films a good, bad, or ugly. A, because there are a lot of films to get through. But also at a film festival, it is just a different type of a vibe. So, yeah. So if you're looking for a rating of all of these, I'm not going to do that on the episode. Hit me up on social media or send me an email about Tribu at gmail.com and I can maybe give it to you then. So, yeah. So that was opening night. Those four short films and two feature length films. Day two was packed. So day two had multiple short films uh there was actually an international shorts block where there were how many were there like three six nine twelve like 15 i think short films some of these i mean they ranged from one minute films or about two minute films to 30 minute film i think is the longest short film that was during this weekend so from one minute 30 minutes there was just a ton of variety of short films so what i will do with the Short film screening blocks is that one I have picked out an honorable mention and then a favorite from the block, you know, from each of those blocks. And then at the end of the episode, when I'm wrapping this up, then I will give my favorite feature of the festival. So the 4 p.m. international shorts on Saturday, there were a ton of them. I, I cannot go through all of them. That would be madness. But I will highlight a couple. So my honorable mention for the international shorts, this is actually, I did not know that this was going to be, I thought it was going to be a short film, but it was essentially a music video slash experimental film called Freak Dream from the UK, or the full title is Freak Dream Don't Want to Be That, which I think is the name of the song from the band Freak Dream. This video is a trip. It basically takes like the animation style from the old, like Monty Python and the Holy or Monty Python's Flying Circus, that style where it would have like a painting and then the jaw would kind of move or the eyes would move, but it was not like this fully animated image. It takes that and then just makes it weird and super twisted where, as you would see this image of a person with either boils on their face or a growth or something like that and it would split open but behind it would be these crazy visualizations with either like an audio spectrum behind it or just some flashing lights and colors all while having this song play in the background so this is interesting that it was essentially just a music video that you know is part of this film festival mainly because of the way the tone uh, is of the song and of the the video so that was really interesting. So that was Freak Dream from the UK. And yeah, I just, I liked that it was just super weird and out there. But my favorite from the 4 p.m. block of international shorts on Saturday was Luchador from Australia. Uh, this actually, so as I was like picking this as my favorite that day, 
I was writing stuff down. And then when I saw the guys at the q and I was like, I got to talk to those guys. So definitely look forward to that interview with Matt Pop and Roberto Lanzas. But yeah, Luchador is a story of a young man who basically it is about identity. You know, he is trying to figure out his place in things, you know, and it reminded me of a lot of, you know, personal experiences that I have gone through in the sense of either whether it is a code switching type of thing where you have to be one version of yourself with certain people. And so he is a, you know, Canadian Mexican character where he almost has to rely on other people in the film to tell him about Mexican culture. At one point, a chupacabra is mentioned and he's asking this girl that he's with. He was like, wait, what is that? You know, so he is still learning about himself, his culture, while also being kind of having his culture thrust upon him by his past in the sense of his grandpa gives him this mask, which makes him transform into a large luchador. So this was hilarious, really well choreographed as far as the stunts, but it really, it connected with me just on a personal level when it comes to that identity, when it comes to trying to figure out who you really are. Is it the person you are with when you are with your family? Like his character is when his, you know, grandpa is just like, no, like we only speak Spanish in this house, speak Spanish when you're with me. Is it that type of thing? Or is it when you're with your friends, you're a different person, you know, and so I really am looking forward to what they do with this concept and how they move it forward. There are talks of a series and things like that. So I'm excited to see where that goes. So that was Luchador from Australia as my favorite from the first block. The second block. So the, whereas the first one was the world shorts, the second block was the North American shorts. So yeah, there were, I think like 10 or 11 in this block as well. Again, ranging from very short to this had the 30 minute short in it as well. So my honorable mention for this one is actually kind of tied in with my my favorite in this block in that they share some of the, the things that I, I liked. So my honorable mention is the most interesting man in show business from LA. This is this kind of takes the uh, mystery angle of like Stig from Top Gear, who only a certain group of my audience is going to know who that is. But you take this kind of mystery figure in this motorcycle helmet and you get this uh, voiceover being like, he does this and this for the production and all that. And they basically bring him in to do the stunts. So this actually had great fight choreography from what we get to see. Really clever way of filming that as well. And then in the end, we get to see this stuntman do some really cool stuff on a motorcycle. This was short. It was funny. And I liked the stunts that I was able to to see in this. So the most interesting man in show business uh, from L.A. gets my honorable mention. My favorite, though, from the North American block is Five Minute Rush from Canada. Now, the film is called Five Minute Rush. It is in a, a shorts program. It is 30 minutes long. So it is almost like that that in-between time where it's like they had a big budget for this. So part of it is like, with that budget, do you stretch this for another like 15 minutes and have it around feature length film? You know, it is it is that weird balance. But Five Minute Rush is basically of a revenge tale or it becomes a revenge tale. It has a like five minute 
coked out fight sequence at the end that sold me right away. Like everything leading up to that, like it was good, really well acted. But as soon as it got into the fight choreography in this warehouse fight scene, I was just, I was so on board. I was so invested. And it was just fun because you see them going through just like some great fight choreography. But then in this warehouse where there are bundles of coke everywhere, he hits a character in the face with one. Of course, that gets into his face as well. So then you are fighting, physically fighting, and fighting your own mental state as you're going through this. But phenomenal fight choreography, uh, well acted, and at 30 minutes, it was interesting. Yeah, I just I the only thing that it is not even a negative. I just I wonder if you either trim it down a little bit more to like more of a traditional short film or extend it because if you have a solid budget like these folks did and you have a group of people that seem to work really well together push it a little bit you know and do close that feature length film but yeah so five minute rush from canada huge fan of that one and then there were two features on saturday as well uh, a mata negra or in english the black forest this is from brazil so this film was directed by rodrigo uh, Arago. I might have messed that up also. My Portuguese is very rusty. Uh, so this one is a Brazilian, an indigenous Brazilian tale of this, you know, small village, which happens to then become almost like the evil dead in the last 20 minutes of this movie. There is possession, there is witchcraft, there is paganism, there is cultish things, there are demons, similar to Pet Cemetery. Similar to other films at this festival, if you make a deal with the devil or a devil or a demon, 10 times out of 10, it is not going to work out in your favor. So here's the thing for my dear listeners. Maybe try not to make a deal with the devil unless you have fully resigned yourself to it not working out for you. So in Amata Negra, this character, you know, she unfortunately loses her boyfriend, you know, or not loses. I mean, he gets killed. It's not like he went down to the store and got lost. So her boyfriend is killed right in front of her. She then has the great idea, the totally logical idea, similar to Pet Cemetery, to bring him back. What could be the harm? Here's the thing. Magic always has a price. The price is normally not worth whatever it was you were planning on doing. So during the course of her learning, you know, this dark magic, learning these pagan rituals, she then is fighting zombies. She then is fighting uh, other creatures. She is then welcoming a demon into the world and kind of being like, yeah, I just need you to kill some people, but you were just going to kill them, right? Like nobody else. That would just be crazy. So uh, yeah, that, that does not go well for her or the world potentially. So I really dug this one because I had not seen just kind of that indigenous Brazilian take on this kind of mysticism before. So that was really cool. I liked that it was shot in the forest, kind of in the village, you know, in and around this small village. It gave it an intimacy of filmmaking that was just really unique because it felt like a lived in part of the forest. Everything felt organic. It was not you know, a studio coming into a force and setting up things and making it feel like a production. 
this just felt authentic. It, that authenticity really helped sell the story. And the story is bonkers. Like the last 20 minutes of this, almost like Evil Dead 2 level of terrifying yet kind of funny yet still terrifying. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Amata Negra slash uh, The Black Forest. Very, very cool film. And yeah, I, I dug that quite a bit. Uh, the other film that was shown on Saturday night, the other feature film that was shown on Saturday night, was Amazon Hotbox. Now, Amazon Hotbox is, and I said in my in my capsule review of this, if you thought the kind of women in prison slash women in cages, Pam Greer-driven exploitation films are no longer being made, oh boy, are you wrong. Because Amazon Hotbox is exactly that. You can actually find, there. there's a box set of three movies called The Women in Cages Collection by Pam Greer. This is basically what those films are, which was a 70s style exploitation, women in prison movies where, of course, there is a, a warden who is all creepy. Of course, there is a leader among these female prisoners who does whatever she wants and gets whatever she wants and takes whatever she wants. And of course, there are zombies. Wait, nope, that was not in the 70s ones. That was in this one. Uh, as well as a zombie, you also have an over-the-top villain, Inga von Krupp, uh, played by Ellie Church. Uh, Tristan Risk plays Val, and she is kind of that... Not she is, kind of. She is the leader of these prisoners. You know, she has been there the longest. She gets whatever she wants. This movie is so out there in so many different ways. And it takes it, you know, it takes that, that 70s kind of romp, exploitation romp, into a genre, you know, that also has these zombies that we get at the end. And we never really understand where they came from. We're never meant to know where they came from. It also has a torture device that at one point we think it might be a, maybe a pleasure device like Barbarella or maybe not. None of this really makes sense in the grand scheme of things, but you do not go into a movie like Amazon Hotbox or those Women in Cages movies with Pam Greer for it to make sense. You go because it is an exploitation film where it is just going to be bananas from beginning to end, and this is. So in that sense, it absolutely fits the bill. It did what it was supposed to do, which is be a complete homage to those 70s exploitation films. Uh, Tristan Risk was was great in this as just kind of the the crazy one, and overall, I mean, yeah, just it was it was a bizarre film, but it was fun, and a lot of people like this had probably more laughs in it than almost any other film over the weekend. Um, I really liked Jet Bryant. Jet Bryant was hilarious, just kind of this deadpan delivery. He is the quote unquote leader of the island, except he does not want to be at all. Because he knows that all the other ones get killed. So, that was great. Uh, so yeah, Amazon Hotbox. That was that was an odd one. But you know exactly what you're getting into when you see a film like this. And if you're looking for that, your search is over. Because Amazon Hotbox delivers on that. The closing day on Sunday, which took place at the Rio Theater. Uh, again, shout out to Rachel and her crew uh, over there at the Rio. It was great. And thank you for being patient with me while I set up my recording studio in a stairwell that the employees had to kind of go past us a couple times to get to the projection room. 
So my apologies to your staff, but they were all really great about it. So thank you for that. So the Sunday had three feature films along with two other short film blocks and the big award ceremony, which you can actually, I live streamed that on my Facebook page. So you can actually find that and check it out. But the two short film blocks, I will talk about those uh, real quick. So those, I will do an honorable mention from the short film block. These ones actually, there were only like six and six or actually seven and six for these. Uh, Some of these I actually had seen. I've seen quite a few of these, like when I covered the Vancouver Short Film Festival. And so with these, the ones that I was looking for that were a little bit different or unique, and and yeah, I was I was impressed. So out of the short film block one, my honorable mention is Nepenthes, written and directed by Ariel Hansen. This also has Tristan Risk in it as well. This basically takes a a woman who is very tired. Of, of dating apps, but she makes a match with this beautiful young woman who they head stuff off right away. She has a head over heels for this person on the other end of the phone. She goes to meet her at her house. As she gets to the house, things start feeling weird, both emotionally and also physically, as she is walking in different places and starts sticking to the ground, starts feeling very odd and I will, I will not give away the big twist but the, the twist is literally in the name Nepenthes you can just google that and find out what that is what I liked about Nepenthes though if I'm pronouncing that right I hope so Ariel uh, this is a body horror short film that was done in a very unique way and in a surprising way where the character would get scratched a little bit she would lift up her shirt. This was some very convincing makeup design and and kind of, I would say, yeah, prosthetic design. We see that on, on her side. We start to see it take over her body, all while this invisible enemy, invisible uh, creature, quote unquote, you know, is doing this to her. So that was just really unique. I liked the idea of this, and this is an idea that I have never seen before. So shout out to you, Ariel, for doing that. We tried to get together and do an interview, but again, at the Rio, it was a little bit challenging just to various places. So hopefully when I go up to Vancouver one of these times, I definitely will sit down with Ariel. She is a great filmmaker and actress up there in Vancouver. So that was my honorable mention. My favorite of short film block one on Sunday is actually one that I had seen before, the Vancouver Short Film Festival, but I was not able to, basically because of the competition and how it was, how I did that last episode, was not able to give it the credit it deserved, but Giltrude's Dwelling was my favorite from Short Film Block 1. Seeing it again a second time after seeing it at the Vancouver Short Film Festival and getting to sit down and talk with Marcy Waftel and Jeremy Lutter from the production now I was able to go into it the second time with some different eyes after interviewing them. And you can listen to that episode uh, from a couple months ago from the Vancouver Short Film Festival. Seeing it again in a venue like this and after talking to them, it really deepened my appreciation for Giltrude's Dwelling. So it is this time traveling slash dimension traveling story where this house is kind of the centerpiece as it bounces from place to place. And it is really about longing and and sacrifice and what you are willing to sacrifice uh, 
for your dreams. So really liked Giltrude's dwelling. It was cool to see it again a second time with some different perspective. So it was my favorite. My honorary mention, honorable mention for short film block two is I think the shortest film of the entire festival. And it was called Ark. And that was written and directed by the only name that I could find was Andreas uh, Salidis, I think. So, and I kind of had to look for that because this did not really have credits because it was only a minute long. In a minute film, it immediately hooked me and made me want to see more of what the story is going to do. We see a young man with some piece of future technology in his hand and he is running from somebody. He gives it to a young woman. She then takes it, acknowledges kind of what that sacrifice is that he is doing. She either implants it into herself or does something to it and then is taken up into space and we see this spaceship in orbit slowly start to fly away cut that was it some people would be dissatisfied with that because they would want to know more me i obviously want to know more but that was enough for me to be like that was really well done and i do want to see more but at the same time if they never go back to this i'm okay with that also but it was just, it was really cool. And in that one minute, it hooked me. So good for you. The My favorite, though, for the short film block is Scion. Scion, this was a tough one. Because there were two films in this block that I was kind of, they were jockeying for position for my favorite. And the other one was Influenced. So Influenced by Julia Brunt was also really, really cool. But Scion had a little bit more of what not, maybe not necessarily what I liked, but it just it hit me in a different way. Scion is essentially, we come to find out in this 11 minutes, a king, a modern King Arthur tale where we have Arthur and Lance, aka Lancelot, you know, having this interaction. And it took me a second to kind of put it together, but I was like, wait a minute. I know these names, I know these stories, because it was just, it was done in a way where it was not so obvious. But once you actually recognize what it is, that was really cool. Also, shout out to Scion for the sword that they use is a replica of Narsil, which was Aragorn's sword that was reforged from his ancestor's sword. He was Isildur's heir. That was really cool, and I liked seeing that sword because it is a really cool sword. So, deep cut uh, Lord of the Rings thing right there, but it made sense within the world. So, yeah, my favorite for that short film block, too, was Scion. And that was written and directed by Matthew Lee, but it was a very close race between that and Influenced. Okay, so now onto the three feature films that were shown on Sunday night. Now, these were Knuckleball, The Hollow Child, and Amy. Amy is what closed out the festival. It was a world premiere of that. So starting with The Hollow Child. Now, this was directed by Jeremy Lutter and written by Ben Rollo. Another example of <laughs> when a kid goes into the forest and comes out a little bit different, that should be a sign something is wrong. Something is very wrong. So this, they basically, they recognize that this daughter is some sort of doppelganger in this town that has this mythology of do not go in this part of the forest because in the 70s, this person went into the forest and then burned down her house because she feared an imposter was trying to take the place of, of people in her life. 
that happens again in this one. And so, I mean, even though we have seen various versions of this before, one of the things that was really incredible in this film was the actual creature design of these kind of doppelgangers, of these imposters. It is not your standard your standard kind of reveal where suddenly he turns a corner and then there's a monster there when it should be a little girl. Instead, it goes into this like you have to, they kind of build in the mythology of the movie that the way to see them is different. And they have to, you know, they, they hide their appearance really well. And so once we actually start to see the breakdown of this creature, it was really cool. And we do finally get to see kind of the the actual creatures themselves, or at least one of them. But during that transformation scene where the character is trying to focus and trying to see, you know, what this thing actually looks like, that was really cool. So this had uh, Jessica McLeod, Hannah Cheremi, uh, as the as the two daughters, those are the two that we really interact with uh, the most. So yeah, that was really cool. And again, this felt their their relationship, this kind of sisterly bond, felt genuine. So that definitely helped to sell it. And the creature design was really cool. Smart choices, you know, as far as the filmmaking, I really liked that. And yeah, it takes a an idea that we have seen before but gives it a little bit of a twist, gives it a unique vision, and that is what sets it apart. So yeah, that was The Hollow Child uh, by Jeremy Lutter and Ben Rolo. The other film was Knuckleball. Knuckleball is disturbing. Like, this is one, how I talked about before, where people kind of cringe. This is one where the subject matter of this is is tough. It is, it is very tough to watch. Basically, uh, a young man, 12-year-old goes to live with his grandpa for a little bit. And this takes place in like the middle of nowhere in Saskatchewan during a snowstorm. There is a a neighbor who is a little bit older. Or not a little bit older. I mean, he definitely is older. And he starts making these weird advances and these weird kind of conversations with this young man, Henry, at 12 years old, this boy. And so right away, it just, it makes you cringe. It makes you feel uncomfortable and it pulls on that and it, and it goes deeper than that. And so as the movie progresses, unfortunately, the, the grandpa dies, you know, rather suddenly. So then this boy is by himself in this house with nothing around. Meanwhile, he knows that this creepy neighbor is, is nearby. And so as he starts kind of piecing these things together, they're definitely are some home alone moments that I liked the kids resiliency uh, and resourcefulness. But yeah, this, this one, it just, it kept pulling on that uncomfortability to really kind of make you feel a part of this world. So this, this has Michael Ironside, Canadian legend, uh, as well as Monroe Chambers and Luca uh, Velasis as, as the three main people. The parents are in this, not very much though. So mainly is the three of them. The two people that interact the most are Monroe and Luca, Dixon and Henry. Their interactions are are so odd and so uncomfortable because of the believability. Because of just this weird energy that you have while watching this movie. 
So again, as I have said before, when art makes you feel something, whether you love it or hate it, it worked. When you, when you come out of a movie and you're like, meh, that was whatever, that movie failed. With this, it makes you feel something. It makes you feel scared for the young man. It makes you feel worried. It makes you want him to succeed in his quest for revenge, as it were, as the movie progresses. So, but yeah, Knuckleball. Very hard to sit through, but solid film. And then the film that ended the festival, the world premiere, was Amy. So it's directed by Rusty Nixon. So again, you will get to hear a bunch of people involved in this production uh, in the about to interview episode. I wanted to give them a lot of coverage because this was the world premiere and it was closing the festival. So I wanted to make sure that I gave them a chance to talk about their amazing film. So this film stars Debs Howard as Cassie, who is a typical 17 year old who loves her boyfriend so, so much. Her boyfriend being Sam Robert, uh, Oh, man, I should have looked up how to say your last name, buddy. Uh, I'm just going to call you Sam Roberts so that I do not butcher your last name. Uh, but she loves Liam, you know, so much. And she has head over heels. Liam is a kind of typical 17-year-old jock-ish guy where he does not really care for her in the same way that she does. He has multiple prospects and he he just moves on rather quickly. But because she is so codependent and because she lost her her mother in an accident she is desperately looking for a connection she finds that connection in this digital companion called amy where she starts to customize it starts to learn about your behaviors and so she customizes it to sound like her mom which would be kind of cute kind of sincere to be like hey i just want to hear my mom as the voice of siri she passed away this is a way for her, for me to keep her with me. Sure, why not? Except when that AI is basically a cross between HAL 9000 and Charles Manson. Because over the course of the film, as Amy is, as the, the technology, Amy, is not just listening, but it is learning. And it is creating different behaviors based on what Cassie quote unquote needs. And so if Cassie is feeling betrayed or hurt, Amy feeds into that. If Cassie is feeling positive and just wants to talk about positive things, Amy feeds into that. But as soon as Cassie starts feeling negative and starts having these negative thoughts, Amy starts turning. And Amy is Amy just wants to protect her. And through that, I mean, we have Phil Granger as Greg, her dad, who has kind of gone on to, this, to become this kind of womanizing character uh her friend ruby havana guppy who you will also hear on the interview suddenly everybody around her starts to recognize something is very wrong this is no longer just oh you just you have an amy as this companion to talk to about your problems this is your amy has learned how dark your mind is and is feeding it and is making you do things that you maybe always wanted to do, but never had the confidence to do. Now you have that push. Now you have that, okay, here it is. Go for it. Uh, Bonnie Hay plays the voice of Amy, as well as her mother, Diane, Cassie's mom, Diane. So this was a kind of a, again, a throwback to an, a typical 80s slasher film. But with that upgraded twist of having this AI 
who is the main antagonist. We have people following her orders, but Amy is the real villain. Even though Debs changes and Debs' character of Cassie changes through the film and starts doing very evil things, Amy is the one with that literal voice in her ear being like, you know, they never appreciated you. I appreciate you. I love you. Just do this to prove it. So really solid. Uh, I definitely yeah, think that people who are fans of slasher genre and people who are terrified of the technology that we carry around in our pocket should definitely check out Amy. Uh, and this is one that is actually going to be available pretty, pretty soon, pretty quickly. Uh, July 2nd is when it will be on a bunch of different platforms. So it had its world premiere at this festival. And it was cool to see the reaction that I got after talking to the cast who, when you create a film and you have like a cast and crew, family and friends screening, everybody is going to love it. Everybody is just going to be so proud that you made the thing. And so to see this, this cast and crew, you know, beforehand being like, this is the world premiere. This is a big deal. So that was really cool. And I'm glad that just everybody had a really good reaction to it. So yeah, so that was Amy, which was the closing night film. So overall, this festival was incredible. Uh, I watched more horror and genre films in 72 hours than I had in a while, but it was great. It was definitely a change of pace, you know, for me of just outside of seeing kind of standard uh, theatrical releases, major studio releases, getting back to that indie feeling of genre films and horror and the unique things that people are doing. Another short film that I definitely wanted to shout out was Captured. Captured was probably the only short film over the weekend that genuinely creeped me out. Uh, the director of photography is Bren McDonald, uh, who, again, we tried to organize a, an interview this weekend, but it just did not work out. So sorry about that, Bren. But Captured was really, really cool. It gave me the creeps. Uh, it kind of takes that lights out approach of you need to have something bright on because as soon as the lights go out or start getting dim, oh, look, a demon is right there. So really, really cleverly filmed and paced, did not rely on jump scares. So yeah, Captured was, was really cool. So I wanted to give that one a shout out uh, as well. Okay, so on to my honorable mention feature film of the 2019 Vancouver Badass Film Festival. My honorable mention is Amy, which I just spoke about at length. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. I think this is something where once it hits the on-demand platforms and other platforms, this is going to do really well. I think especially now that like things like Shudder, you know, and there are genre on-demand services, people are going to get, you know, people are going to find this and be able to watch it and have access to it. So that I'm really excited for. So that is Amy gets my honorable mention for a best of in the Vancouver Badass Film Festival 2019. So my favorite feature film that I saw uh, this past weekend was Perfect Skin. And this is one that I, I did not know that I would like this one as much as I did. But with how much it stuck with me, with how much I kept thinking about the really clever ways they did things. And again, the portrayals. So, I mean, Natalia and Richard, like, it was incredible. And I think those performances, along with 
the film itself are really what stuck out stuck out to me. So Perfect Skin gets my best of uh, award, I guess. No, not award. Because if I say award, people are going to actually want an award. It gets my favorite uh, for the Vancouver Badass Film Festival. So that kind of wraps it up for uh, my coverage of the 2019 Vancouver Badass Film Festival. It was a ton of fun. I got to meet a lot of really great filmmakers. I wish that I had more time to sit down with people, but it was really, really packed weekend. So hopefully, you know, there's some people that I can collaborate with next time I go up to Vancouver, which hopefully is pretty soon, depending on uh, kind of what festivals are going on. If you are interested in having me cover your festival, if you are a festival director, definitely hit me up. Uh, just about to review at gmail.com is an easy way or on all forms of social media. And yeah, we can talk about that and see what we can make happen. So thank you again to David Abusafi, who is the co-creator of Vancouver Badass Film Festival and the companies he is associated with, Generativity Productions and Darkside Releasing. If you are a Vancouver-based filmmaker and you're looking for either financing or production work, definitely reach out to those. And not just if you're a Vancouver-based filmmaker, like Amata Negra, Darkside Releasing did that film. Like they released that film, Amazon Hotbox. That was one of theirs. So if you're a filmmaker, especially in genres like this, reach out to David, reach out to those two companies, and they will absolutely help you out. So that wraps it up. It was a great weekend. Thank you to David. Thank you to Noah. Thank you to Mark. Thank you to all of the guests who sat down with me, to Francis at Van City Theater, to Rachel at Rio Theater. Uh, yeah, it was a great weekend watching a bunch of creepy films uh, in the dark by myself in a balcony while I took notes like a weirdo. Uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun. So I'm glad that I covered it. And thank you again to everybody for making time to talk to me. So for this week's episode, I reviewed Pet Cemetery, which I gave a bad to because it just did not really connect with me. Uh, and then Vancouver Badass Film Festival talked all about that. Look forward to the about to interview episode with the filmmakers that I will be putting out uh, very, very soon. So for this podcast, you can find it on all forms of social media at About Treeview on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.com slash About Treeview. If you go to AboutTreeView.com, you can find full links to the show notes and guests, as well as subscribe everywhere. Support the show if you want to and if you're able to. There's a PayPal link. There's also an Amazon wish list in the episode description. The other thing that I should mention is it is coming up on my podcast birthday. So April 9th, next week, will actually mark three years that I have been creating this podcast or producing, not creating, three years producing this podcast. It has been an absolute amazing ride. April 9th was kind of the intro episode. The first real episode was a week later. So that was April, I think it was April 13th. It was actually a little bit weird. But April 13th was like the official episode one of About to Review or episode two, technically, without the intro episode counting. So yeah, three years old. So with that in mind, if you wanted to get a birthday present, then click on the Amazon wish list and see if there's anything that you'd like to get, like some pens, which I always seem to run out of because people take them because they are amazing. So follow the podcast on social media uh, and do all of that. That is amazing. Thank you so much for listening, especially if you are a new listener. This is a weekly podcast, film review podcast, 
that has a goal of amplifying diverse voices in media. I have been your host, that guy named John, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.